let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you again, thankful that you have allowed us the privilege to gather together in this place to worship you in truth and spirit. We thank you that we can know that we are in Christ, that all of our sins have been paid for, and that we have received his righteousness so that we are acceptable in your sight to be able to worship you in a manner that's pleasing to you. We pray, Father, that your spirit might come this day. For we know that all is vain unless your spirit comes, so we pray, Father, that you would be pleased to send him to do that which only he can do, that of teaching us and leading us in the path of righteousness and bringing sinners to Christ. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased to work in our midst by your spirit to save sinners and sanctify the saints. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your word to study and so that we might know more of your salvation, that we might understand the words of Christ, and we pray, Father, that you would continue to teach us this day these sayings of Christ. Pray that our lives would be governed by them and that you might use us, Father, for your glory and honor. We pray, Father, for the church at whole as it meets across the world today that many would be brought into your kingdom and that your people would grow in grace. We pray, Father, for those who are in need. We think of Pastor Huey Moog's family. We pray that your comfort would be upon them. We thank you for his life, such a godly example before us. We pray, Father, that you would continue to use his testimony to many. We pray, Father, that you would comfort as only you can those who grieve over the loss of this one who loved you so dearly. We pray, Father, that we would look at his life and pray that our lives would be similar for just as Paul said, follow my example as I follow Christ's example, we know that he was a man that could say that. Pray for those, Father, who can't not be with us today. You know their reasons and their needs. Those who need your healing hand upon their body, we pray that you might restore their health quickly so that they might return and be with us. Pray for those that would be a way that you would give them safety and, and travel and bring them back to us quickly. Pray for those who would be unconcerned and allow other things to pressure them to where they would not gather together with the brethren. He would bring repentance in their life and that they would return to us soon. Pray, Father, that all that would be said this day would be pleasing in your sight and bring glory to your name. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Matthew chapter 7, and we will again look at verses 24 through 27. Matthew 7, beginning with verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, 
I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the flood came, and the wind blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded, grounded on the rock. Now, everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended. Floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. If you have been with us any time, you know that we are at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is wrapping things up and teaching us what a true profession of faith is. And he's given us evidence in these two different individuals. One is called a wise man and the other one is called a foolish man. Now all of us should want to know whether we are a wise man or a foolish man. We should want to know that before the day of judgment comes. And we see quite clearly that Jesus is seeking to press this upon his hearers so that they might be able to examine themselves in a way that is best. Now this illustration that Jesus gives us is very easy for us to be able to grasp. We all know the importance of a foundation in a house, especially if you live in the metro area. I remember years ago when I was a student at RTS and going to visit another student who lived in one of the houses at that time, RTS, owned some houses behind the campus and there was four guys that lived in that house, and I can remember walking into the house, and the floor was kind of like an ocean, rolling. Doors were not closed. There were cracks in the walls, cracks in the ceiling, and cracks in the floor. I, I think I know why people donated some of those houses to RTS. They wanted to get rid of them. And then eventually RTS got rid of them because it was costing them more money to keep those houses up than they wanted to spend on it. And we see quite clearly how important a foundation is to a house. Now we saw last week that the foundation that Jesus is speaking of here is not his foundation that we see in other places in Scripture. Now, of course, that is taught that he is the foundation of the church. We see that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation as well, and they speak of that. And we see that that, of course, is referring to justification that he alone is our salvation through repentance and faith in him. But in this particular passage, Jesus is speaking of sanctification, which, of course, comes as a result of justification. Paul speaks of this in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you know, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my present, but much more in my absent, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So Jesus, when he speaks here in chapter 7, verse 24 and 26 about these sayings of mine, that's the foundation that he's talking about in this passage. You must leave it in context. So what he's saying, these sayings of mine, if you have heard these sayings of mine and you have applied these sayings of mine, then you have a solid foundation, which is the Word of God. So the man who takes Christ's sayings seriously, those sayings regulate his life daily, 
is a wise man. If you disregard the sayings of Jesus, if you don't take them seriously, then you are a foolish man. That's what Jesus is saying to us. So therefore, it's important that we understand these sayings of Jesus that he has mentioned here. The wise man is one who hears the sayings of Christ, comes to him, as we see in Luke, the parallel passage, Luke 6, verse 47, and this involves a turning away from the world in repentance, forsaking the world, and then, as Luke 6 says, does them. So we see in that parallel passage in Luke 6, which, of course, gives us this same uh, parable that Jesus used here. He says in verse 47, Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show who he is like. So therefore, the one that does those, he is the one that builds his house on this solid foundation. He comes to Christ, he listens to Christ, and he does what Christ says. Therefore, he is a wise man. And the opposite is true also. He that does not come to Christ, he that does not hear his sayings, and does not do them, is a foolish man. Now, that's easy for us to understand. Now, I want to remind you that these sayings of mine, which Jesus says here, are Christ's principles that he has preached throughout this Sermon on the Mount, beginning in chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. All of those sayings that he has here in this sermon is what we are to be listening to and doing. So the true Christian will seek to live out the teachings of Christ. Now, of course, he does that by the grace of God. He doesn't do that in his own power. It does it by the grace that God has given him, enabling him, and giving him the strength to be able to live it out. But yet, in his heart, he has a desire, and he loves the teachings of Christ. Now, what he has told us has been clearly taught. No one can say, well, I didn't know it. I didn't understand it. I didn't know what Jesus was talking about here as far as a wise man and a foolish man. No, a Christian receives the sayings of Jesus and he seeks to live them out in his life daily. He's a wise man. He hears. He understands. He does what Christ has commanded him. And it begins with him believing in what Christ has accomplished, having spiritual knowledge of what Christ requires of him and humbling, submitting to everything that Christ requires of him. And he takes up his cross, denies himself daily, and follows Christ. So it involves a realization of these sayings of mine, and therefore understanding them. Now, not only is that good counsel for us, but they are imperative, crucial in the Christian life. Therefore, I won't disregard them because I know that if I disregard them, it will be spiritual peril for my life. I put them to practice so that I'm able to abstain from that which Christ forbids in my life and do what pleases Him, which is my joy. As I mentioned last week, John 13, 17. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Now, what are these things? Well, these things are his sayings. If you know these things, that which Jesus teaches you, 
and you put them into practice, happy are you in doing them. So therefore, if you want happiness, be obedient to Christ. Now this doing is of utmost importance. Our Lord teaching is more than merely outward requirements that he gives us. No, it's a radical change of the heart, having a new heart which desires to conform to his image. And our mind, of course, is involved in that, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, that we are being conformed to his image by what? The renewing of our mind. How do we renew our mind? We renew our mind by studying the word of God and seeking to apply the word of God into our life. Our affections must be regulated by the Word of God. Our will must be governed by the will of God. Our minds must be dominated by the will of God. Then our actions will be in tune with the sayings of Christ. His Word will dwell in us richly, as Paul says in Colossians 3.16. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Is that happening in your life? Is the word of Christ dwelling richly in all wisdom in your life? If it is, then I go back to what I said a moment ago. Then you will have happiness in your life. You will have joy, unspeakable joy in your life. So Jesus clearly reveals these two groups of wise man and foolish man. And and he does that throughout the Gospels, right? I mean, there's always two groups. There's not three groups. There's always two groups. You have the sheep and the goat. You have the wheat and the tare. You have the lost and the saved. You have the righteous and the unrighteous. You have the light and the darkness. And I could go on and on and on. There's always just two groups of individuals. Now, what does the house build upon this rock represent? What it represents, the character of one who has heard the sayings of Christ, listened to his teachings, and displays a conduct that is in line with what he has taught. He lines up with the Word of God. The Word of God is a plumb line. You know what a plumb line is. We call it now levels. It seeks to show you whether you're in line or out of square. So therefore, a plumb line displays who you are as far as being a Christian. And God's Word is our plumb line. Are we lining up with God's Word? Are we richly dwelling upon it? Paul, there at Ephesus, entrusted the believers of God with the word of grace. And he said, which is able to build you up. So it's the word of God that is able to build us up. And he tells the Colossians, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. And then Jude 20 says, build up yourself on your most holy faith. So we see the word built or build repeated three different times in these particular verses. That word in the Greek built can also be translated edify. We see in Romans 14, 9, it says, Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things which one may edify another. 
So we're in the business of edifying each other, being built up, being built up in the Word of God, but also instructing one another and edifying one another. We must be very careful in our interaction with one another, in our conversations with one another, so that we are spiritually encouraging each other constructively so that we do not deconstruct. And everything continues to point to that what? Doing that he calls us to do. Doing the word of God. And this is the dominant thing. Putting into practice God's divine will. The sayings of Christ. As Samuel told Saul, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Now what was Samuel pointing out? Well, he was stating that it's more important to you to keep what God has told you to do than for you to offer a sacrifice. It's more pleasing than any outward religious act that you can perform. In Luke 11, 27 and 28, it says, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and what? Keep it. So not only are we to hear it, but we are to keep it. It's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to keep it. Sometimes I used to tell my children, you know, I think it went went in one ear and went out the other. In other words, it didn't stop in the middle. You know what I'm talking about if you have children. I mean, you want them to hear, but you also want them to do. Well, that's what God's Word is telling us to do. Now, Christ's benefit... Benediction rests upon those who keep his word in their heart and they see it as the most precious possession that they have. They meditate upon it so that their life is regulated by the word of God. The word of God must be utmost in their life. I I remember years ago, uh, Chris's dad, Brother Brother Kerry, wrote an article about the Word of God and the inspired Word of God in the Baptist record in Louisiana. And, And somebody responded, another individual responded, well, you made the Word of God an idol. And Brother Kerry wrote back, precious idol. How true that is. I mean, God's Word is precious to us. God's Word is who reveals to us who Christ is. It's something that is to be utmost in our life. There's a reason why the Word of God is first in our confession of faith. Because without the Word of God, we would not know God. Without the Word of God, we would not know God's will. Without the Word of God, we'd be unable to do anything to please God. So God's Word must be utmost in our mind. We must treasure it in our heart, as the hymn says. Now, they are, I mean, the Word of God is that which we are to obey, even though we know we do it imperfectly, and we know that we're at fault often. But that doesn't keep us from working out our salvation with fear and trembling, attempting to show our love for God, attempting to be obedient in every single area of our life, even though we may not be. See, Christ's Word should be a flashing billboard in our mind. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, constantly flashing, All through the day, hear my saying and do them. See, this doesn't mean that his disciples continuously and perfectly perform all of his precepts. No, we're still sinners. We sin every day, and we must be renewed by God's grace every day. 
and we will never be rendered sinless while we are here on this earth. Not until we get to glory will we be rendered sinless. But we have a desire to be sinless, to not struggle with sin. That's our desire. But we realize also that the imputed righteousness of Christ is put, it, is, uh, put to our account. Now, that doesn't keep us from battling sin. We don't sit back and say, well, I have the imputed righteousness, so therefore I'll just coast alone. I don't have to battle sin. Christ has saved me. God looks upon me as righteous because of the work of Christ, so therefore I'll just coast alone. No, that's not our mindset. We know what the Word of God has told us, that we are to battle against the flesh, that we are to crucify self daily. And therefore, daily we fail to render obedience to God's law, and we realize that even our highest act of worship, when we gather here on the Lord's Day to worship God, our worship is even marred by sin. But the righteousness of Jesus Christ makes our worship acceptable to God. So a true Christian performs Christ's saying sincerely in the Spirit, in the truth, though it is not perfect, but where there is a genuine willingness, God accepts it because of Christ. So if there is this genuine willingness, God accepts our deeds. As 2 Corinthians 8, 12 says, For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has done, and not according to what he does not have. So we see that if there's a willing mind in a Christian, then God will accept it. Now remember, God has written his law on our heart. So a Christian desires to be obedient. He earnestly prays to be obedient. He repents and he confesses his sin when he's disobedient. So according to the terms of the covenant of grace, God is pleased to accept our imperfection, our disobedience, our, I mean our obedience, and account it as keeping the law, due, of course, to Christ's obedience on our behalf. And we know that Christ sanctifies our imperfect obedience so that the imputive righteousness that he has given us, takes our flaws and our imperfect righteousness and purifies it. So it's as though we have kept the law of God perfectly. Now that's one sense for our, hard for our minds to grasp, that God looks upon us as though we have always kept his law perfectly. Now, why does he look upon us in that fashion? Well, again, because of Christ, his imputed righteousness. Romans 8, 4 says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, of course, in this life, we should be more actively seeking repentance because of our failures and our sins than offering to God flawlessness. But we know that God 
takes our sinfulness and because of Christ looks upon them as though we are flawless. Now that's amazing. That's, that's wonderful. That's grace. Amazing grace. Now next what is revealed by this particular passage as far as what takes place against this house. The hurricane which bust upon the house and the test of the house's security that Christ speaks of. Charles Spurgeon calls this the common trial of the two houses. He says, whether your religion be true or not, it will be tried. Did you hear that? Your religion, whether it's true or not, it's going to be tried. Whether it be shaft or wheat, or fan, uh, the fan of the great wind owner will be blown in operation upon that which lies upon the threshing floor. If thou hast dealings with God, thou hast to do with a consuming fire. Whether thou be a real or nominal Christian, if thou come near to Christ, he will try thee as silver is tried. Judgment must begin in the house of God. And if thou darest to come into the house of God, judgment will begin with thee. Now, if judgment begins in the house of God, what will be the end of those who do not believe? I mean, that's a terrible thought. It's what's going to happen to those who do not believe. Now, what we learn from these trials that come on all who profess to know Christ, we see that there's different kinds of trials that are going to come upon us. And, and they're represented here in this parable by the rain, the flood, and the wind. Now, the rain symbolizes afflictions that come from heaven. Now, some people have a difficult time with that, that God would bring affliction upon us, that God would shower us with adversities and, and tribulations. Well, if God is sovereign over everything, God allows that which comes in our life, or he doesn't allow something to come in our life. Right? We see that clearly in the story of Job, right? Who orchestrated that event? Who was in control of every single thing that happened to Job? Well, God was. God used Satan as a puppet. He allowed Satan to do certain things, and there's other things that he would not allow Satan to do to Job. And we see that also in our own life. Now, between now and heaven, a professor of Christ will feel the thunderstorms that come into his life. Now, like most men, your body will one day, as you get older, and sometimes it's even before you get older, you'll, you'll, you'll get sick. You'll have sickness. You'll have aches and pains. You'll have to have surgery. You'll have to begin to take medicine. And all of these things come from the hand of God. And if you're not relying on Christ and His sayings, it will be too much. It will overwhelm you. Trouble will come into our house. Children will rebel. Things will not go as you planned. Your dreams of riches may end up in bankruptcy. Your life may be shorter than you expect it to be. And if you're not relying on cross, you will not be able to bear the trials that come into your life. If you're not trusting Him, if you do not have real faith, 
the rain that comes from heaven will be too much for you. So therefore, the sayings of Christ must be our foundation as we seek to prepare for what God has for us in the future. I mean, if you're young, you seem like you have a many, many years to live. The more I hear of friends of mine passing away, the more I'm confronted with death and, and realize I'm getting old. I don't like that, except the aspect that I'm getting closer and closer to the heaven, but I don't like the old, old part because I can't do what I used to do, even though my mind sometimes thinks that I can do what I used to do, and then the next day I realize I shouldn't have done that. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But we're getting old, and we're drawing closer and closer to glory. And God is in control of that, and God brings particular trials into our life. And sometimes he brings those trials into our life to realize that we are not what we think we are. We're not as strong as we think we are. And to cause us to realize that we must trust him daily for everything that he has for us and realize that the things that he brings into our life is to make us more like Christ. Now, second, there will be trials on earth. The floods came, the scripture says. Now, the floods or persecution were more difficult earlier in Christianity. I mean, you read the New Testament and see what happened to Christians there. You study church history and see what happened to Christians in the beginning. I mean, none of us are threatened with being carried into the Colosseum and have to uh, face the fierce beasts that come out of the Colosseum and, and tear their bodies apart. Christians today, thank the Lord, are not having to face that. Now, there are still Christians that are persecuted, but persecution early on was much worse than it is today. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't experience persecution in the future. We could possibly experience it. But we know that persecution is still felt upon us. And all believers will have to bear persecution to some degree. I mean, cruel mockering, mockery today still exists. And it's growing here in America against God's people. I mean, the world hates the church. Get used to it, folks. The world hates Christianity. Get used to it. And they will do everything in their power to silence Christianity, even though they won't be able to silence Christianity. They're going to try to silence Christianity. Now, how do they silence Christianity? By attacking you. They have to shut you up. They have to silence you to silence Christianity. So we will constantly be bombarded. And we see the wickedness in our day. I mean, just this past week, we saw a lot of wickedness in Louisiana by those who were upset because the, <clears throat> the Senate and the uh, legislator there in Louisiana overrode the veto of the governor. The governor was, uh, we could say, pro-trans. And I'm so thankful that Louisiana... Uh, senators and legislators said, no, we are not. We're not going to allow this to be taught in our schools. We're not going to allow this to be advocated. We're not going to uh, encourage it. So therefore, they stood against it. Well, one of the senators, Senator uh, Raising, got a phone call from one of these individuals in his district. Uh, and I don't even want you to go listen to it. It is so filthy. What comes out of this particular individual's mouth, he was a graduate teacher at LSU, and the things that he said to this 
senator was so ungodly in the things that he called to come down upon him. And again, we see the hypocrisy in our society, especially in our news media. If, if a conservative would have said these things, it'd be blasted all over the news and say, see how ridiculous these conservatives are? But of course, when it's a liberal that does these, they get a bite. But from that, we see how much people hate righteousness. That's what this guy is upset about. He's upset against righteousness in God's way. Now, I'm, I'm thankful that LSU has um, ended this guy's um, employment. I'm pro-LSU on that. We won't go any further than that. Now, we also see that it's growing more and more against us. I've said before from this pulpit that one day I would not be surprised that if you say certain things from the pulpit that you will be threatened with a lawsuit or you will be threatened with prison time. I mean, it's already happening in Canada, right? I mean, certain things that you can't say up there, uh, pastors that are being threatened, if you speak against homosexuality and other sins that are abominable that the scripture speaks of, you're threatened. Now, we must be willing to stand firm on the truth. We must be willing to bear slandered and reproach for the name of Christ. But if you're not firmly rooted and grounded in the sayings of Christ, then temptation and persecution will come and you will wither away just like the parable of the sowers, those that sprung up quick and when the sun came out and the tribulations came, they faded away. Now third, there comes the mysterious trial signified by the wind, the prince of the power of the air that assaults us with blasphemous suggestions and horrible temptations and, and devilish insinuations. He knows how to cast dark clouds upon the human spirit. The devil is like a roaring lion, the scripture tells us. Seeking what? Seeking whom he may devour. He hasn't ceased, folks. He's continuing to do that, and he's seeking to devour us. The devil will attack all four corners of the house all at once by his mysterious agency, tempting us in various ways, and at the same time, even seeking to drive us to our wits' end. Woe to those who only have a mere sand profession, for destruction will come to them. But where there is a good foundation, trials will not do any harm. But a sandy, sandy foundation will bring a man's profession down to ruins, even his life. I mean, how many lose their religion at the outcast? They make a profession just like in the parable of the sowers spring up quickly, they look good, and then they fade away. I know our ladies remember Pliable in Pilgrim's Progress that they studied this past year, and of course they will continue their study of Pilgrim's Progress uh, in the fall, and I encourage all the ladies to be a part of that if you're able to. But Pliable and, and Christian, they, they both set out for the celestial city, remember? I mean, both were seeking the crown of glory. But then they fell there in the sleuth of despondence. And as 
parable was struggling, he finally was able to get out. And he did what? He went back to the city of destruction. We see that Bunyan puts it this way. Now saw in my dream that just as they had ended their talk, they drew near to a very miry sloth and swamp that was in the middle of the plain. And they being careless, both suddenly fell into the bog. They wallowed for a time in the swamp and were caked with mud. Christian, because of his burden on his back, began to sink into the mire. Then said Pliable, Ah, neighbor Christian, where are you now? Truly, said Christian, I don't know. At this Pliable began to be offended and angry that he said, Is this the happiness that you've been telling me of? If we have such trouble at our set out, what may be expected between now and the end of our journey? If I get out again with my life, you shall possess the brave country alone. And with that, he gave a desperate urge or two. And out of the mire on the side of the swamp near his own house, away he went. And pilgrims saw him no more. Therefore, Christian was left to tumble in the slough of despondence all, all alone. And he struggled to the side, furthest from his own home and closer to the wicked gate. But he could not get out because of the burden on his back. But, he beheld in, but I beheld in my dream that a man came to him whose name was Helpful. And asked, what are you doing here, Christian? Sir, I was told to go this way by a man called Evangelist who directed me all among the yonder gate that I might escape from the wrath to come. As I was going, I fell in here. Helpful. But why did you not look for the steps, Christian? Fear followed me so hard that I fled the next way. And fell in. Helpful said, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand and he drew him out and set him on solid ground and blade him to go on his way. Then he stepped up to him who had plucked him out and said, sir, since this is the way to, from the city of destruction to yonder gate, why is this place not mended so poor travelers like me going to the gate do not fall in but have a safe journey? He said to me, this miry sloth cannot be mended. It is the hollow where the scum and the filth that go with all the feelings of sin constantly run. And therefore, it's called the sleuth of despondent. For as the sinner is awakened by his lost condition, many fears, doubts, and discouraging alarms arise in his soul. All of these together settle in this one place. This is the reason why the ground is so bad. It is not the pleasure of the king that this place should be remain so bad, but the direction of his majesty 
surveyors, his laborers, have been trying to improve this patch of ground for 1,600 years. I know that at least 20,000 cartloads and millions of wholesome teachings have been swallowed up here. They were the very best material brought at all seasons from all places of the king's dominion to improve the ground, but to no avail. It is still the sloth of despondence and will remain so that when they have come, what they can. Now children, you remember what happened to Pliable? Well, remember he returned home to his neighbors. And his neighbors came over and they visited him. Some of them called him a wise man for coming back home. Others called him a fool for even going with Christians. Others mocked him as a coward, saying, Surely, since you began the journey, would you not have been so vile as to return back after many difficulties? So we see that Pliable sat among them in shame. But eventually he became more confident, and then they all began to revile poor Christian, of course, behind his back. Here, of course, we see again what? Wise and foolish. Wise pilgrim and, and foolish pilgrim. It's very clear. As Christian proceeded further, we see that they are tried. Infidels will often seek to cause doubts, to doubt the essentials of the faith. And eventually all of the doctrines, those who are not well cemented upon the rock, are easily moved from their belief, even those things that they learned as children. I mean, this is the age of infidels. But they who are on the rock by the truthful experience are not moved while others fall away. I remember years ago, an individual shared with me how his family had gone to the mission field with their two young children and how their young children had been raised in a Christian home and professed to know Christ and went to a Christian school and even the young man gave testimony and defended the faith, appeared to be a strong Christian. And then they sent him back to the States to go to one of the universities. And while he was at the university, he began to be questioned about his faith and professors began to seek to cause him to deny the faith and ask him questions like, well, if there's such a, if there's a God, then why is there so much suffering? And of course he could remember when he was on the mission field, all the suffering that took place. He saw all those children who were orphans and he saw so much horrible things there while he was on the mission field and he began to question, well, you know, if there is a God, why, why in the world would he allow such things to happen? And he began to be pressured more and more by the professors and he began to question the essentials of the faith and the necessary to understand the doctrines of God and Christ and the Spirit. And eventually, he became an atheist. Walked away from the faith, denied the faith, and no longer 
pursued the celestial city. Shipwreck. Where the heart is not truly grounded in the sayings of Christ, you will find that heresy as well as infidelities will bring disaster. But if one is grounded in the truth, that will not happen. Spurgeon says, the sound Christian is like a stone. If he's thrown into the pool of false doctrine, he may get wet, but he doesn't receive it into his inner self. Whereas the unsound professor is like a sponge. He sucks it all in greeting and and retains what he absorbs. How true that is. I mean, how many there are who have fallen away from the faith because of worldliness. Their religion was but a mere profession. And the worldliness soon invaded their heart and they became as a lost man. However, the Christian man's heart is changed. He's right with God. He comes out. He's separate from this world. And the pride of life does not entrap him as it does a mere professor. Finally, we see the difference between the trials and how it referenced the life to come. I mean, in the first case, the rain descended very heavily. It threatened to wash away the house. But being built upon the rock, Not only did the house stand, but the man inside found what? Great comfort. He found great security as he was in the house, even though the rains were coming very hard upon the house. He could hear the rain beating on the roof. And what did he do? He could sit there and he could sing. When the gust of wind came against the windows, he was very happy knowing that he had shelter, knowing that he had a good foundation. And when the flood came, it could not cause him to sway because he knew that he was founded upon a firm foundation. Even though the howling winds came, he knew he was secure. So happy is the man that is safe in Christ and his sayings. See, the Christian rests peacefully upon the sayings of Christ. Troubles may come one after another, but they do not hinder his belief. They do not sway him because he understands what Christ has said. He understands the promises of Christ and he has built his hope in them, knowing that they will come true. And when death comes, the awkward flood which will undermine everything that can be moved, it cannot find anything to shake the wise builder's hope. For he rests in what Christ has done and Christ has said. Death cannot affect him. I can't help to think of Pastor Huey, who I've known for over 30 years and what kind of man he was. They posted a picture 
of him in his hospital bed this past week. He had his arms raised, praising God, because he knew he was getting closer and closer to glory. The sickness that he's had for the last few years didn't cause him to fall, fall away. It pushed him closer to Christ because he knew that Christ was his security. He knew that Christ was his hope. He knew that Christ was bringing him into glory. So he gives God praise. I'm ready, Father. If you're ready, take me home. Take me. For I'm your servant. And I'm ready to see you face to face. He believed it. He believed in the covenant signs and seals and confirmed in all that Christ had said. And he laid his hope in the shalls and the wills of the immutable God, all sealed by the blood of Christ our Redeemer. Death cannot affect those who are in Christ. They look forward to death and being with him. But when that last trumpet sounds, and the fire that shall every man's work cease, then the man who is truly, sincerely, and a really experienced has laid hold of Jesus Christ. He is not afraid in that hour. For Christ is his surety. The man of God knows that the rock on which he is built can never fail him. The hope that grace has given him can never be removed. So he smiles amidst the storm. But the man whose hope is built on sand, he can hardly endure the trials of life. He almost fell under common temptation. And he turns away during the hours of persecution. Now angrier trials now await him. And perhaps he has never known that he was lost until that day. Like Davies, which it says, in hell. He lifted his eyes, being in torment. See, he never lifted up his eyes before to God. He did not know his condition till he actually was in misery there in hell. Then he lifted up his eyes in pain and torment. But most men who have come under the sound of the gospel and have made a profession, if they have been deceived, will find out at death. It will be too late. There in that dreadful hell, they will lift up their eyes just as he did, knowing that there is no deliverance. As one man said, Oh, I pray that if you be mistaken by May you find it out now and not on your deathbed. 
May your prayers be, Lord, show me the worst of my case. If my profession has been a mistake, oh, let me not build up and prop up a rotten thing, but help me to build a rock upon the rock of ages. Oh, I pray, I beg that you remember these things. Remember, in death, you should not teach those who are alive. But that in death, you will turn and you will see that you are in the judgment because you have rejected Christ. There will be no mistake there. There will be no opportunity to repent. This fallen house will never be built again. There will be no salvage of that total wreckage from the storm. Lost. Lost. Lost forever. There's no words that follow, but those that are stated here, there was a great fall. And that's the end. Let me close with these words of Spurgeon. O dear hearer, I bid thee, if thou hast a name to live and art dead, arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee life. I pray thee that if thou be a seeker, be not put off with an empty hope and vain confidence. Buy the truth and sell it not. Lay hold of eternal life. Seek the true Savior and be not content till thou hast come to Him. Oh, that lake. Have you ever read the words? Shall be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. The lake of fire, the soul cast in two. The imagery is dreadful. Ah, says one. That's a metaphor. Yes, I know it is. And a metaphor is but a shadow of the reality. Then if the shadow be a fire, a lake of fire, what must be the reality? If we can hardly bear to think of the worm that never dieth, and the fire that never shall be quenched, and the lake who seeth ways of fire that dash undyingly and hopeless souls, what must hell then be very like? The descriptions of Scripture are, after all, but condensation to our ignorance, partially revealing the mysteries. But if these are so dreadful, what must be the reality? Provoke it not, my hearer. Tempt not your God. Neglect not the great salvation, for if you do, you shall not escape. Play not with your soul. Be not heedless and careless of realities of eternity. But now, even now, may God hear your prayer as you breathe it from your inmost soul and give you truly to be washed 
in the precious blood and effectually saved by Him in whom there is fullness of truth and grace. Father, these words are so sobering. May your spirit wake us up to them. You know, Father, every heart in this room, whether it's been converted or remains hard, Drive your truth into those old hard hearts by your Spirit. Make dead sinners alive for your glory and your honor. May you receive all the praise. And it's in Christ's name we pray.